listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. No doubt about it, the short-lived age of the church growing in the United States has come to an end, at least for now, at least for the foreseeable future. If the demographics tell us anything, we simply can't support the growth of the church with the population made up the way it is anymore. And in addition to that, there are people who are leaving the church. They call it de-churching. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about de-churching in America, Michael Graham. He's program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, co-author of the new book, The Great De-churching: Who's Leaving, Why Are They Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? Michael, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Your study in a previous conversation, you indicated that many de-church people are open to the idea of coming back to church. Is it simply as easy as just saying, you're invited back to church? It depends on the person. The answer to that's complicated. We saw probably three different levels of the kind of interaction that people need. So one of the profiles in particular, yeah, it is as simple as just inviting them back to church. So in chapter four in the book, we talk about this group, the mainstream de-churched evangelicals. These folks left a, around the time of early COVID on average. They have seemingly very orthodox views of the gospel. The Holy Spirit definitely seems to still be working in their lives. They have very sound ethics in terms of, you know, the things that you'd want to see from somebody who's has a vibrant walk with Jesus. They just got out of out of the habit of going to church for very pedestrian reasons like I moved or something inconvenient, maybe travel sports, something of that sort. And so, yes, for for that group, they just need a nudge from us whether it's a water cooler moment, a phone call, a text, hey, I really like my church. It seems like I think you would too. I'd love for you to come with me and maybe we can go grab lunch after, you know, something of that sort. For other folks, some of the other profiles, I think these are folks that need a little bit more relationship from us. They need to be, maybe this is metaphorical or maybe it's actually literal. They need to be at our dinner table. They need to have some more touch points with with us, some more relationships, some more context. In many of these folks, they've been out of the habit for much longer than just a few years, a decade or, or a few decades in certain instances. And then there's a third level. So nudge, dinner table, and then just a third level of somebody who just, we need to be in their life for years and years and years, and they might not still return, but we don't know that. We're not the Holy Spirit. And so I think people, when you're trying to evaluate, okay, do I make an investment in this relationship? I think the number one question I always ask people just kind of pastorally is, well, I believe that God puts people in front of us consistently of the people he wants us to make investments in. And so I think sometimes God's going to put people in our lives that he wants us to make deeper relational investments in. And maybe some of those people fit that third category of they're in their life for years and years, or maybe even decades or more. And uh, maybe it still doesn't make a difference. But I think the people that 
God wants us to be investing in or the people he's just kind of consistently putting in front of us and or, you know, things like family members, people who we're tied to for life. Those are the three levels. What should we avoid when we're trying to bring the de-churched back to church? Well, one thing to put that in the positive, what we tell people is we encourage a quiet, calm and curious posture. So the opposite of that would be, don't listen, but be the primary person who's talking, be emotionally dysregulated, (laughs) and don't be curious. So I think many people's experience with people who are regular churchgoers is we feel like we have total certainty, we have all the answers, and you take up all the oxygen in the conversation. I think most people... When you walk away from a conversation, usually you're left with some sort of impression. And from the conversations I've had in my life that have left a positive impression, most of them involve the other person giving their full devoted attention to the conversation, to them asking good questions, and you experiencing them listening with kind of good active listening skills. And there's some sort of repetition of what they heard, or you feel like communication was actually transacted. And so I think that those are the things that we want to see. And I think when when people have the ability to have somebody just listen to them, ask good questions, hear their stories, and have some level of validation, especially if there's somebody has some pain in their story surrounding Jesus or surrounding the church or these kinds of things. Well, especially if there's something that's antithetical to the gospel, we want to validate that, man, that's really hard or that's not right. Or maybe that's not the kind of church that you want to return to. Because many times people might be leaving something that's really unhealthy and that decision to leave might actually be a good decision. Those are some things that I would say, but yeah, we you know, it stated in the positive, quiet, calm, curiosity, stated in the negative. Yeah, we want to avoid being overbearing. We don't want to speak more than we listen. And we certainly want to just avoid having monologues with people because people will tell you what will be most powerful to them. Do smaller churches have an advantage over larger churches when bringing back the de-churched? Like many of these questions, it's complicated, okay? So one of the things that Jim and I talk about are no walls, high walls, and medium walls. So let's talk about no walls. Let's talk about the mega church. We'll call it Christ Depot, okay? Christ Depot is huge. It's a big box. It's easy to get into. They got coffee in the lobby and basically no barriers to entry. And when you go and worship at Christ Depot, you're just kind of anonymous there, one seat and probably with a thousand different seats and maybe a handful of people even recognize that you were there and those different kinds of things. And in Christ Depot really didn't know that you came that Sunday and they probably only notice if you're gone, if your automatic giving ceases. So that's a kind of a no wall context. And maybe Christ Depot doesn't even have a church membership process. Then you have on the opposite end of the spectrum, say a church that's overbearing and over shepherding in being maybe micromanaging 
things about their congregants' lives and their church members' lives that don't necessarily pertain to their spiritual well-being or their growth in faith. I'm not talking about churches that are just trying to do some level of shepherding, trying to have some level of church discipline for things that are kind of discipline worthy, but I'm talking about bordering on authoritarianism in terms of the way that staff and clergy or elders relate to church members. So that's high walls. And in those kinds of environments, it's hard to get in, but it's hard to get out. And that hard to get out piece, I think, is can be a bit dangerous, particularly if there's malpractice kind of taking place there in the church environment. What we advocate for is for churches that have membership processes and who actually know their members. And here's a good litmus test for whether the church as an institution knows its members. So in my tradition, we have elders. In different traditions, you might call those things different. The locus of energy might be the deacons or might be a, a vestry or something of this sort. But a good litmus test of whether you actually know your church members is, can you go household by household among that leadership body and pray for each individual household with specificity? I don't particularly care what church size that we're talking about here, but churches who can pray with specificity on a household by household basis, I think those are the churches that are going to do better with respect to de-churching. I can think of small churches that do this really well. I can think of large churches where it takes more systems and you got to be robust on that. But I do know some, some churches on the larger end on the whole I would say that probably I might give a slight edge to the small to medium-sized church over the large church with respect to the de-churching phenomenon. But I think I don't want to be punitive towards your larger churches, but I think it really does boil down to, do you have a membership process? Do you know who your people are? And are you in your lives in a way that's in accordance with what scripture has to say and what the best practices are in terms of following the, the fruit of the spirit and the one another's and all of the various passages in the new Testament about just kind of doing church. Does the length of time away from church affect things? Absolutely. It does. The longer somebody, I mean, I can say this is objective. This is objectively true from a statistical standpoint, the longer somebody is away from church, the more they erode doctrinally. So you can just see the graph pretty clearly over time that, you know, the longer you're out of the habit of going to church, the more your beliefs in kind of Nicene Creed level Christianity really begin to erode. There's a real drop off after things start to really deteriorate in the five to 10 year range and kind of go pretty far from there. Depending on the profile too, the erosion of Christian belief happens at different rates, depending on the different profiles. The BIPOC group, the erosion of belief wasn't as steep as the cultural Christian group. The cultural Christian group didn't look like they really ever even understood kind of a nice period level Christianity. But yeah, it, it depends a little bit on, on the group, but certainly being out of the habit of going to church regularly is definitely impacting people's beliefs. And 
it doesn't appreciate. It's only depreciation the longer you're out. So let's talk about some some of these terms and and the difference that someone might notice between someone who is de-churched, the term that we're using, and the now common unchurched that is defined as never having connected with a Christian congregation. What are the differences between the two and especially with reaching out to them? Yeah, these are great questions. Yeah, definitely want to define terms. So we define de-churching as somebody who used to go to church or a house of worship at least on a monthly or greater basis for a long period of time and now goes to church less than once per year. So even if somebody went to church, you know, last Christmas or last Easter, we didn't count them as de-churched in our study. So there's several million more people who are like either Christmas only, Easter only, or Christmas and Easter only. And so, but we wanted to have a definition of de-churched that was like, that nobody could pull coals into of like, yeah, they're gone. So unchurched is people who have never consistently gone to a house of worship on a monthly or greater basis. And so the de-churched phenomenon will lead to an unchurched phenomenon, certainly within a generation, maybe sooner. Because when you have two parents who've de-churched and they have a child, well, is that child de-churched? No, that child is now unchurched because they've never been in the habit of kind of regularly going to church. And so just like we had different spikes in COVID, you had one version of COVID and it spiked, and then you had a variant and it spiked. Well, that's kind of going to be what occurs. Right now we have a spike in de-churching and that's going to lead to a spike in unchurching. That spike is probably already on the rise. It certainly is. If you look at the data on those who are what they call religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And so that's the fastest growing segment of religious self-identification in American culture and society. Something on order of, I think, 25 to 30% of Americans are now nuns. 6% of that being atheist, 6% agnostic, and then the rest being, quote, nothing in particular. Michael Graham is our guest. We're talking about de-churching in America. He's co-author of the new book, The Great De-Churching. When we come back, has technology played a role in the de-churching? We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. 
Memoria Press's Phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. A number of people have asked about Ad Crusom's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship Confessional Theology Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. We're talking about de-churching in America. Michael Graham is our guest, co-author of the new book, The Great De-churching. Michael, has technology played a role in people becoming de-churched? Oh, absolutely. A lot accelerated in the 1990s. You know, some of that has to do with the, the end of the Cold War. Some of that has to do with 9-11. Before the end of the Cold War, the enemy for the United States was the atheistic communists. But now it's the kind of Muslim religious fundamentalist zealots with 9-11. So from 1991 to 2001, that 10 years, you have that shift in mindset. But at that same time, by the turn of the century or turn of the millennium at the same time, you had over half of America now on high-speed internet. People could interact with all different sorts of ideas from the safety of their own home. You know, before that, if you wanted to engage other worldviews, you know, you had to go to the library. Well, that's a pretty big barrier to, to entry. And I don't experience many Americans as wanting to go to the library and teach themselves new things. And then when we move from Web 1.0, which is mainly web pages, to Web 2.0, the social web. Well, now when you're able to find all of the people from high school from decades ago, and you're able to find all these other people almost instantaneously through this medium. And now this medium has these internal kind of dopamine incentive structures for me to share things that I normally wouldn't have shared in the course of normal conversation. So, you know, if an American culture and society 
things like politics and religion were off the table in embodied conversation. Well, in social web, what do people want to talk about on Twitter and Facebook and some of these different things? Well, they want to talk about controversial things and they want to talk about controversial things because they experience a lot of dopamine hits from people liking, sharing, retweeting, commenting. And some of those things come from people providing friction to what they're saying and inducing anger. And some of those dopamine hits come from people providing positive affirmation about the things that they just put out there in this digital communication. So technology has definitely accelerated this phenomenon. And I can find six other pastors in my city that listen to this, some of the same obscure music that I do. I can, I can find these people in like five minutes facilitated through technology and through social web. But on, on the one hand, that's kind of cool. On the other hand, it's really dangerous because I can now create the illusion that everybody is like me and you end up niching down these increasingly obscure Venn diagrams of how people self-identify and you can find people, you know, very quickly who agree with you at not just like high level things, not just like primary and secondary things, but primary, secondary, tertiary, and sometimes even four or five levels down. And so the problem with that is if there are other people who have real issues and maybe those issues aren't very common, you can easily begin to stir each other up into a kind of mimetic spiral a mimetic downward spiral of thinking something is maybe more problematic or challenging than what it really is more objectively. And so, yes, technology is definitely exacerbating all of these trends. Can the technology be used to at least help bring the de-church back? Well, yeah, I mean, technology is, I don't know if I would say it's agnostic and totally morally neutral in all of these things. I think I think some of the social web is perhaps tilted or slanted against spiritual things in some challenging ways, but it certainly is also an opportunity and an avenue for us to communicate a different perspective or a different way. There's all sorts of things that we can say. You don't have to go back to what you left. You can find something that's a healthier expression of Christ church and one that has greater fidelity to the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel. Any like specific suggestions regarding the use of technology in rechurching the dechurched? So here's an interesting case study. This would be a large church case study. Our church is a medium-sized church. We're like four or five hundred on a Sunday. This church is like several thousand, and they're in a college town. And we gave them access to all of our data very early on, about two years ago. And they took what we learned from those profiles and they built some digital resources that were very relevant, particularly for the mainstream de-churched evangelical. So they made some resources that would resonate with that particular profile. And then they used Facebook ads to communicate, hey, here's this free resource. They made some devotional resources. 
And those devotional resources they gave away for free. And they then had them on an, kind of an, a long email campaign that kind of sent devotionals to them for several, several weeks. And at the end of that, there was an invitation to come and worship with them at their church. And so, and again, they built all of this based on what they knew about this particular de-church profile, and they built targeted ads within Facebook that would kind of narrow that down to these kinds of folks. Well, they had several hundred people end up coming to their church as a result of giving away these digital devotionals online, and they added a lot of value and encouraged people to be more connected in their devotional life with Jesus privately. And that ended up turning the corner into them taking the next step with respect to worshiping in an embodied real life corporate worship. So I have my critiques of technology and I don't particularly care for many of these platforms. I remain on them for, you know, for only for ministry purposes, but, you know, I think that's a great example of, you know, how, how a church with a large budget and lots of staff and these kinds of things employed what they learned to great effect on using some of the research that's here. What we've done in our church that we don't have the marketing budget to run thousands of dollars of Facebook ads and build unique resources that are targeted for those different kinds of things. But we encourage our people to, if there's things that they like about church, communicate those things through those technologies. Hey, I love my church. I really enjoyed worship today. This sermon spoke really powerfully to me. And here's a link to the thing. And those kinds of digital posts have turned into real world conversations between people and real life invites and people returning to church and these kinds of things. So again, different strategies and tactics depending on size and budget and these different kinds of things. But technology definitely has a place to play in all of these things. I think churches also need to have strategies on how do you communicate with and connect with people who are moving to your community? At a minimum, you need to think about what does your digital presence look like? And look, your website really shouldn't be for your existing church body. And if it is maybe as a secondary usage of it, its primary source of usage should be for communicating the things that you would need to know and that you'd want to know if you are potentially a first time visitor that's there. And so I think viewing those communication channels in those ways, as opposed to thinking about those things as being primarily for you, but there's all different ways that you can communicate with people who are brand new to your city. You know, some of those things are, you know, through the U.S. Postal Service and other kind of direct mail services. And there's also digital ways that you can communicate with people. You can target Facebook ads for people who are brand new to your city and who just moved in the last number of X months. So those are some other ways that you can utilize technology 24-7 to be communicating with people who are new or who might potentially come to church. Someone might say, why extend the effort to people who've been to church and then drifted away? Why not focus more on reaching new people? Well, that's a good question. You definitely don't want to have an either or approach. This is definitely a both and kind of thing. So we want to be investing in people who God is putting in front of us. And that's all of us as we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Anybody who's in Christ is 
we're a part of that kingdom and we've been deputized as ambassadors of that kingdom to do this work. People who have had the habit of going to church somewhat regularly, I think there's, while there may be some challenges and particularly if there's pain that's there in them, there might be some challenges, but for the most part, it looks like, you know, three out of four haven't had, you know, really painful experiences. And sometimes if you've been in the habit of doing something, you know, you get, you know, 30 days of being in the habit of doing it again and it sticks. And so I think when also when you just kind of drill down and see that most of the reasons why people left and stopped going to church don't really seem like very good reasons in particular, very pragmatic things. Like again, I moved, attendance was inconvenient, marriage, divorce, remarriage, the birth of a child, these kinds of things. Well, if something really pedestrian got them out of the habit of going to church, well, maybe something as pedestrian as a little bit of relational risk and a little bit of movement in their life will get them back into those things. So I think the answer to your question is, it just seems like common sense, low-hanging fruit for us. Going into this, Jim and I weren't sure that is an invite to church potentially a relationship-ending conversation? And it really doesn't look like it when you kind of zoom out and maybe for a handful of people that might be an uncomfortable thing, but you'll know if you exercise any level of relational wisdom, you'll know for the people who that might be a higher friction conversation, you'll know before you ever make an invite to those different kinds of things. All you have to do is ask basic questions like, hey, my faith is something that's really important to me. Are you somebody who's a person of faith as well? And people, they'll tell you all sorts of things about their relationship to God or church or religion or spirituality. So you just got to ask questions in a non-threatening and calm, curious way. That's just one of my favorite questions to ask is, are you a person of faith? Because people will tell you. We're talking with Michael Graham, co-author of the new book, The Great Dechurching, who's leaving, why they're going, and what will it take to bring them back? How many should we expect to return? That's next. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Seminex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Essential exercise for the Christian mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison. 
president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. talking about de-churching in America. Michael Graham is our guest, program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Michael, your study found that 40 million Americans have left the church. Realistically, how many should we expect to return? That's a great question. From people who left evangelical churches, the upper end of that would be 20 million. That would be probably top end in terms of their stated will. Obviously, the Holy Spirit could, I mean, it could be all 40. But in terms of people's stated willingness right now, about 20 million are actively willing to return. About 8 million people who left evangelical churches, and then about 10 million who left mainline or Roman Catholic churches, the other people being, you know, out of non Christian traditions. So. In terms of realistically, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I guess that's ultimately kind of up to, you know, it's up to the Holy Spirit's movement and it's up to this conversation being a conversation that has far more awareness about it than probably what it currently has. So I don't know. It just depends on how much really the either the church institutionally or the church as individuals becomes aware of the problem, educated about what they can do, and then mobilized to to act on it. So I'm really not sure what to expect. A lot of that will just depend on this conversation that Jim and I are trying to start nationally. Well, how far does it go? How long does it go? Does it impact just a handful of institutions and individuals? Or is it something that goes much deeper than that? And are people energized and mobilized and educated at a high level? So I'm not sure what to expect, but in terms of people willing, I mean, you're talking 20 million people, that's one in 12 U.S. adults. So how big an issue for the de-churched is the marriage in some sectors of American Christianity of the religious right and the political right? And if it's a big problem, how does the church maintain faithfulness to the teachings of scripture without slipping into that marriage? Yeah, that's a great question. So the de-churching that occurred in the 90s and early aughts was more on the mainline and Roman Catholic side of things and was definitely 
more in the direction of the political slash secular left. The dechurching that's happening more recently is something that's happening more on people dechurching and becoming more connected with the secular right. And dechurching that's occurring on the secular right is happening at twice the rate of the dechurching that's happening on the secular left. Now, people who are kind of reacting against the kind of secular right MAGA kind of thing, well, if many of those people are kind of leaving church and into the arms of you know, some, some form of secular progressivism, and then some people who are dechurching on the secular right, well, my church isn't doing enough to criticize what's going on among secular progressives. Therefore, I'm going to leave church into the open arms of kind of the populist secular right. So I think we don't want to have a Christian faith that's culturally captive. That's the most important principle. Okay. We want people to have a clear understanding that our, our faith is not beholden to any political institution. That doesn't mean that we don't have thoughts about what's in the interest of public good. It doesn't mean that we don't have thoughts in terms of public policy. It doesn't mean that we don't participate in things like elections. However, I think it comes down to how we order our loves. And where does the love of country and the extent to which one places hope for joy, for all the different things that you're tempted to worship, you know, prosperity, happiness, health, these different kinds of things. To what extent are we individually and or institutionally placing our love there? And is it reaching a place where that love is becoming disordered, where either it's too high on how it's ordered or even where that love becomes higher than the love and affection that we have for, for Jesus and our citizenship in his eternal kingdom. So that's framing in terms of the actual question. It is, it is definitely a problem. I think that it is a problem that's probably maybe a little bit more pronounced on the marriage to the political right especially the secular right than it is to the secular left as we're looking at those things today. I would say historically, I wouldn't say that was always the case, that same directionality when you go back to the 90s and these kinds of things. But yes, there's no doubt that the marriage to the the religious right, particularly among evangelicals, has been very off-putting for many and not necessarily driving people wholesale into secular progressivism either. It just might just be off-putting regardless of how it moves people. So in terms of quantifying how many million people are upset about all of that and the the factors that are there with that, I would want to really kind of think through from our data set how exactly we would measure that. So I don't want to say just off the top of my head, lick your finger and (laughs) uh, it's about this, you know, but it it is definitely a problem. And 
I think principally we want to avoid cultural captivity. And in this instance, you know, being, being beholden to a particular party or even just a particular set of policies, even if we feel strongly that, you know, this is in the interest of public good. I think we just have to be very careful about how we order our loves and nothing should ever come close to our affection for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for his kingdom. Finally, with about a minute here, what is your primary, your bottom line message that you want to get out about the de-churched? Well, they're not all the same. So you want to read the great de-churching so you can get a sense of what kind of de-churched person am I looking at? Two, there's a tremendous amount of hope. Half the people who have left are willing to return today. We're talking about people who've even been gone for decades. And then three, I would say it's important to take relational risk. You'll know if there's relational stop signs and you can pay attention to those, but who is the Lord kind of put consistently in front of you? Take some relational risk with those people. Have some spiritual conversation. You know, if you've never had a spiritual conversation before, use that question. Are you a person of faith? Something, you know, important to me. I don't want to hide that. So those would just be some things that I would say on the individual level. And then if you're listening to this and you're clergy, we have a gospel that's true. We have a gospel that's good. And we have a gospel that's beautiful. Let's work on our institutions so that people can not just hear, but they can tangibly experience that truth, goodness, and beauty of that gospel that we've received. And let's make our churches more in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Michael Graham is program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, co-author of the new book, The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why They Are Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? You'll find a link to this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Wednesday on Issues Etc., it's media coverage of religion with journalist Terry Mattingly. We'll continue our series with Dr. Arthur Just on the historical liturgy, and we'll visit with Dr. Paul Robbie, author of our book of the month, The Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.
Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Mascuda, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Mascuda, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmascuta.com. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.